However, when Jesus returns, he will call you from the grave. Your soul will be reunited with your body, and you will rise from the dead in your glorified body that cannot sin, suffer, or die, and you will enjoy eternity with God in body and soul. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Fox Den. In the last episode, I began a series on the first catechism. And the real purpose for this series is to equip parents of young children with a solid foundation of Christianity in order to help them teach their children the basics of the faith. However, I think these episodes will be helpful for anyone who listens because I'll dig deeper into each question. So I hope you stay with me as I work through this catechism over the next several episodes. And with that said, let's begin with question 14 of the first catechism. Where do you learn how to love and obey God? And it answers by saying, in the Bible alone. Though we can learn many things about God through creation, we can't learn how to love and obey him from creation. That means we need another source to teach us how to love and obey God, and that source is the Bible. Now, there are many things that we can learn from the Bible. We learn about the power of God in the creation narrative found in Genesis 1, where we see that God created all things from nothing by the power of his voice. He spoke and it happened. We also learn about the promise that God made to defeat Satan in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We learn about the sovereignty of God as he carries out his plan to defeat Satan throughout biblical history. We also learn about God's love for his people as he gave Jesus Christ to die the death that we deserve on our behalf. So we learn about God from the Bible. We learn about his love and how he's fulfilling his promise. However, it also tells us how we are to love him and obey him. The first thing I need to mention at this point is that loving God and obeying him are related. You cannot love God if you don't obey him. Or said another way, if you love God, you'll obey him. And Jesus says something similar in John chapter 14, verse 15. And there he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So loving God and obeying God are connected. And with that said, the Bible tells us what God expects us to believe about him and how we are to behave. Now, at this point, it's important to let you know that you will not obey God perfectly in this life. But for our purposes with this question, the Bible tells us how we are to love God by believing what it says about him and how he expects us to live. Now, let me make one more point here. The Bible is sufficient to tell us what to believe about God and how to behave. You don't need anything else. Now, the Bible may not answer every question of the universe, like, how does the eyeball work? Or, what is the square root of 49? However, it gives you all that you need as a believer to believe, love, and obey God. The Bible alone is sufficient for faith and life. Let me go on to the next question. Who wrote the Bible? And it answers by saying, chosen men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is known in theological circles as the doctrine of inspiration. Basically, inspiration means that God moved men to write what he wanted them to write. Technically, the doctrine of inspiration should be called the doctrine of expiration, breathing out. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So God breathed out his word through men he chose, and they put it in writing. So though the different books in the Bible were written by different men, God is the main author. He worked in these men to write what he wanted them to write. In essence, he breathed out his word through these men. And that's why I say that the doctrine of inspiration should actually be called the doctrine of expiration, breathing out. However, I'm sure theologians of the past didn't like that term because it might refer to death, right? Somebody expired. Or it might communicate the end of a contract, like an expiration date. So at this point, let me reiterate, this is known as the doctrine of inspiration, God moving men to write what he wanted them to write. Now, when God did this, God didn't violate the personalities of these writers, which is evident in the writings. If you compare the Gospel of Mark with the Gospel of John, you'll see stylistic differences. In other words, the personality of each man is evident in their writings. However, since God moved these men to write what he wanted them to write, these men aren't the real authors of their letters. God is the author because he so moved them to write what he wanted them to write. And this is why we call the Bible God's Word. Now, another place that we can go to support the doctrine of inspiration is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19-21. through 21. And this is what it says. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to footstop verse 21. God spoke through men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, if God is the author of the Bible, it's God's Word. And since it is God's Word, it should be believed and obeyed. Through the Bible, God tells you how you are to love Him by believing what He says and obeying Him. And that means that the Bible is authoritative. It has the right to tell you what to believe and how to obey. Next question, who were our first parents? And it answers by saying, Adam and Eve. Now, this shouldn't be controversial, but with the advent of the theory of evolution, some interesting theories have crept into the church. So the question we must ask here is, did Adam evolve from another animal? Now, there are some people who would say yes because of evolution, and they've married theology and evolution. However, there's a problem. Listen to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The biblical account contradicts the view that Adam came from a creature because he was formed from the ground. So God created Adam from the ground and breathed life into him. Then from Adam, God created Eve. Now, this sounds very mythological, doesn't it? You mean to tell me God took a rib from Adam and made a woman? 
That's what the Bible communicates. And the Apostle Paul believed the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 2. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. Explaining why he doesn't allow women to teach men or have authority over them, he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Well, this comports with Genesis chapter 2. Now, one more thing we gather from Genesis 2 is that Adam and Eve were God's special creation, different from the beasts of the field. Now, I'm not going to add anything here because the next several questions will add more detail. So I'll move on to the next question. How did God create man? God created man, male and female, after his own image. I already addressed this earlier, but I'll add a bit more detail. First, there are only two genders. This should be a no-brainer, but in today's world, I have to add a few comments. Our Western governments want you to believe that there are many genders, and you get to pick your own. However, I've already established that the Bible is God's Word, so what he says is true. The Bible says that God created two genders. Listen to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we see the two genders that God created, male and female. And to say otherwise is to call God a liar. And to say otherwise is to elevate man over God, claiming that he knows more than God. But man is a creature, and God is the creator. Don't you think God knows how many genders he created? Furthermore, man is a fallen creature, so his heart is set against God. Though he thinks he's better than God, he's not. So our Western culture that pushes the multiple gender agenda is incorrect. And not only that, their agenda is evil. And it's an intentional attack on God's created order. God is God, and he says that there are only two genders, so there are only two genders. End of discussion. Next, we see that man is a special creature of God because God made man after his image. No other animal was made after the image of God. For example, according to Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, the beasts of the field were brought forth from the earth, But the Bible says nothing about God making them in his image or even breathing life into them like he did with man. Listen to what Genesis chapter 1 verses 24 and 25 says. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Concerning man, however, God made man after his image and breathed life into him. We already saw that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. So man is God's special creation. But what does this mean? Well, I think the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 10, helps us understand. It asks, how did God create man? And it answers by saying, God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, 
with dominion over the creatures. So from this answer, we can see not only that man is a special creature of God, but we see how he's different from the other creatures in his knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, and with dominion over God's earthly creatures. Man was created to be a godlike figure to govern God's creation. He was God's representative on earth. Let me move on to the next question. Of what were our first parents made? And it answers by saying God made Adam's body out of the ground and Eve's body out of the rib from Adam. I already covered this, so I won't add any additional comments here. So let me move on to the next question. What else did God give Adam and Eve besides bodies? And it answers by saying he gave them souls that will last forever. God created Adam and Eve with a body and a soul. And you can use the term spirit and soul interchangeably. The soul is that immaterial part of your being. So Adam and Eve were more than just physical creatures responding to environmental stimuli. God created them as sinless moral beings with the ability to choose good or evil. So they were creatures with a body and a soul, and their souls will last forever. That means after they died, Adam's and Eve's bones are somewhere here on earth, while their souls exist and will exist forever. Now let me go to the next question because it's related to this question. Do you have a soul as well as a body? Yes, and my soul is going to last forever. You come from Adam and Eve, so you have a body and a soul. In fact, your soul isn't the real you. The real you is body and soul. That's how God created you, and you will die someday, but your soul will exist forever. Now, I think this is a good place for us to talk about end times. And in theological circles, the study of end times is known as eschatology. Now, I'm not going to discuss the different eschatological views, such as premillennialism, postmillennialism, or amillennialism. However, I think it's important at this point to discuss what's going to happen to you when you die. From this catechism question, you know that you have a body and a soul, and you know that your soul will last forever. But you've walked on earth long enough to know that your death is 100% guarantee. So what is going to happen when you die? At the moment of death, your soul is separated from your body, and the souls of believers are immediately ushered into the presence of God where they will never sin, suffer, or die. And this is known in theological circles as the intermediate state. It's called intermediate because it's not the end state. And that means that you won't remain as a soul without a body forever. Remember, God created you body and soul, and that's how you will enjoy eternity. And what that means is you will die and your soul will be separated from your body. And your soul will be ushered into the presence of God and your body will remain here on earth. However, when Jesus returns, he will call you from the grave. Your soul will be reunited with your body and you will rise from the dead in your glorified body that cannot sin, suffer, or die, and you will enjoy eternity with God in body and soul. Now, perhaps you're wondering what happened to those who were cremated. After all, their bodies aren't lying in a grave. Perhaps their ashes were scattered in the ocean. Well, Ezekiel 37 tells us that that's not an issue. In Ezekiel 37, God gave Ezekiel a vision. And Ezekiel preached to the dry bones in the valley, and the bones were pulled together, and flesh was restored to the bones. 
then life was breathed into the bodies and they came alive. And this is what God's going to do in the future when Jesus returns. Those who are lying in their graves are going to come back to life. But those whose bodies are scattered about, he's going to pull them back together. And he's going to breathe life into them. He's going to restore that which was lost at the fall in Genesis 3. And he's going to bring the dead back to life. And nothing can stop him. I think it's important to note here that the end game of Christianity is not a soul playing a harp on a cloud in heaven, as some ideas suggest. The end game is resurrection. You and me living with God in body and soul forever without sinning, suffering, or dying. Let me go to the next question. How do you know your soul will last forever? Because the Bible tells me so. This is pretty self-explanatory, so I, I won't add much here. I will, however, point you to a few biblical references. The first is 1 Corinthians 15, which is the resurrection chapter. Your body without a soul is nothing more than matter. That's why we bury the dead. But a day is coming when your soul will be reunited with your body, and you will live again forever in body and soul. Your resurrected body is proof that your soul will live forever. And then also in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, and in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, John saw the souls of those who died bearing witness to the Word of God. Their souls are in the intermediate state, still existing, waiting for the resurrection. Next question. In what condition did God make Adam and Eve? It answers by saying he made them holy and happy. After God created the different things over the first five days, he said that what he created was good. However, we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, that after he created Adam and Eve, he looked at what he created and he said it was very good. So from this, we can conclude that Adam and Eve were sinless. If Adam and Eve were sinful, at this point, God would not have said that what he was created was very good. And then furthermore, we can conclude prior to the fall in Genesis 3 that sin had not yet destroyed everything they had. What they had before the fall was very good, and the result of the fall was very bad. For example, before the fall, they had life and perfect fellowship with God. But the fall brought death and war with God, which we'll see more clearly in the next episode. So God created Adam and Eve holy and happy. Next question. What covenant did God make with Adam? And it answers by saying the covenant of life. Now, the first thing to note here is that the Westminster Standards use different terms for basically the same thing. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 12, asks, What special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate wherein he was created? And it answers by saying, When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him, upon condition of perfect obedience forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. However, the Westminster Confession of Faith states, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam, and in him to his posterity, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So, though the Westminster Standards use covenant of life and covenant of works, both communicate the same covenant. Both communicate that God promised life to Adam and those who descended from him upon perfect obedience to God. And then second, this question rightly recognizes that the covenant was made with Adam, not Adam and Eve. 
Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17 communicate the covenant of life. And there God gave Adam freedom to eat from any tree of the garden except one. He also commanded Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that he ate of it, he would surely die. Then after God issued this command to Adam or established this covenant, he created Eve. So the covenant was made with Adam and the consequences for violating that covenant fell on Adam. And we'll dig deeper into this covenant more here in a moment. So I'll move on to the next question. What is a covenant? And it answers by saying a relationship that God establishes with us and guarantees by his word. Now, there are many who define a covenant as a contract or an agreement between two parties, but this misses the heart of a covenant concerning God. Though there's a contractual element in a covenant, it's not a contract. This question defines a covenant as a relationship. In his Reformed Dogmatics, Herman Hoeksema says the essence of God's covenant is a communion of friendship. So when God made a covenant with Adam, he wasn't entering into an agreement with him or establishing a contract. He created Adam for friendship. And in this covenant, God established the stipulations for the covenant to remain in friendship. As a friend of God, Adam was to refrain from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And to violate the covenant would destroy the friendship because God is holy and sinless and cannot be in the presence of sin. And we learn from this that God is a covenant-making God. And when he rescued you, he entered into a covenant with you. He entered into fellowship or a communion of friendship with you. And I'll cover this as well in more detail in later episodes. Next question. In the covenant of life, what did God require Adam to do? And it answers by saying to obey God perfectly. Now, there are some who think that God is overbearing because he demanded perfect obedience. However, this is a distorted view of God. He demands perfect obedience because he's holy and sinless. He hates sin and he expected Adam to obey him in order to remain in the condition in which he was created. Perfect obedience was the stipulation of the covenant of life. Adam was sinless. It actually shouldn't have been that hard to obey. Now, it's going to be a while before we get there, but you need to know that Jesus Christ fulfilled the requirements of the covenant of life on your behalf so that you can be restored to a communion of friendship with God. And just so you know, God did this, not you. He's the one who initiated this plan of redemption, and he's the one who fulfilled this plan of redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. Next question. What did God promise in the covenant of life? To reward Adam with life if he obeyed God perfectly. Had Adam obeyed God perfectly, he would have remained in his sinless condition, and he never would have died. And this is why the Westminster Confession refers to it as a covenant of works. By his obedience or his works, Adam would have secured life forever. Next question. What did God threaten in the covenant of life? And it answers by saying to punish Adam with death if he disobeyed God. God told Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, You may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So had Adam obeyed God, he would have remained in a sinless condition. However, if he disobeyed God, he would die and earn death for those descending from him. 
And that's what we learn in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Well, I think that's enough for now. I hope you found this beneficial, and I hope you'll continue to join me as we look at the first catechism. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.